welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Would you like to sell more of your nonfiction books on Amazon? Hi there, this is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. This week I spoke to Alex Newton of Klytics. And Klytics is an interesting company in that it shows you how to optimize your book so it sells more on Amazon. And you can also use Klytics to figure out what type of books and particularly nonfiction books you should be writing. Now, Alex began a career in the corporate world before leaving to set up his own business, which helps self-published authors. And I started by asking Alex why he set up Klytics in the first place. Well, when I first started, there was a very, very selfish reason. I spent, you know, 20 years in corporate life, my traveling around the world, working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, sort of. It felt like this. And uh, my little daughter was born, right? She she was then by then three years old. And I really, you know, looked at myself, said, look, there, there has to be another way, you know, apart from the corporate life. Is there any way of earning money from home? And at the time, obviously, there were the big buzzwords like passive income and all these uh, sort of things. And where I find, by the way, passive income is a big misnomer. What I now have is active income, but it's earned it's earned from home by hard work. And that's when I sort of started figuring out, OK, there has to be a way online. How did I get into the publishing side of things? Well, my career before I went into top management consulting, I did spend time in publishing. And then it was right at the time was like the big Kindle gold rush time. I think today is the 20th anniversary of Google and we have 11 years of Kindle. And, you know, back then when Kindle was like three, four years old, there was a big gold rush type of feeling. So I looked at the time into Amazon and, you know, earning money online. And so, well, first I thought, let's go into publishing myself. But I was a very fact-based person. I started looking at book pages. I started looking at Amazon sales ranks at you know, at genres and fiction, nonfiction, and started figuring out if you start looking at the data in a smart way, you can tell exactly what's trending, uh, what's, you know, going up, what's going up, what is selling and what is not crowded as a space yet. And that's when thing came to things, you know, first report about 30 main genres on Kindle. And I gave it to a couple of authors and said, hey, cool, can you do this on subcategories? Right. And I said, yes. And, and, the, and it progressed. And that's how Klytics was born. Basically, it stands for K is Kindle and Lytics is for analytics. So that's how it was born. Klytics, market intelligence for uh, authors and publishers. And I've used some of your reports to change how I position my books, uh, my nonfiction books on Amazon. How do you think it can help writers sell more books in a way that they might not necessarily be able to do by themselves? Well, there is two stages to the use of the data that or like the strategic angle that you basically look at the book market with all its like 5,000 genres that you have on Kindle and take a look at, well, what is actually selling and what space is not overly crowded. So where is there still a favorable ratio of demand versus supply and where can you still earn some money? Now, that angle is not to mean that you should bend yourself. You know, I, I never recommend there's these buzzwords out there like right to market and these sort of things. And I, I say, look, don't bend yourself. If you write nonfiction, you usually write for authority to prove authority and ideally also to make money on the side. Right. So when you do that, you still have to write something where you're really knowledgeable. 
because there are so many, you know, say junk books out there in the book market of want to be experts. So the first angle is select a market where there, I'd never say success is guaranteed. That's impossible. But my philosophy is show me those book markets and book market niches where the odds of success are substantially higher than in other parts of the book market. So how do you sell more books? First stage is strategic. You select a book market where the odds of success are overproportionately high. The second part to the equation is either you already have a book or once the book is there, it gets very tactical. And that tactical end of it is Amazon offers you to put your book into various categories and the categories offer you visibility and categories play together with keywords. So that that becomes a very technical subject. But basically, the categories are part of the metadata of a book and help discoverability to your readers that, that browse the site or search the site. And there, knowing which categories to put the book in can also help increase like the technical odds of success. So looking at your reports, one thing that struck me, this is probably something I've noticed on the Amazon store as well, is that romance books, thriller books, and so on, sell vastly more than a typical nonfiction book. Yes, that is true. And I think there is reasons to that. First thing is, when Kindle was born as a device, you know, if you look at who typically purchased a Kindle, now I don't have exact data on the demographics of Kindle owners, only Amazon has. But when the market evolved, you know, it was the perfect present that you give your mom for Christmas. And when I got on the plane, it always seemed to me the typical Kindle reader is whatever female between 40 and 60 years old. You know, if you're a young guy now, no offense taken if you also own a Kindle. But the fact is, right now, the number one genre on Kindle is romance then you have mystery, thriller, suspense, then you have sci-fi fantasy, then you have teen young adult, then you start getting into like self-help, business and money, business and investing, these sort of titles. But you're completely right. The bulk of the sales, the volume is driven by romance. And my hypothesis is the, apart from the fact that also in the print business, these are the main, you know, these are major book markets, especially Mr. Thriller Suspense. The demographics behind the typical Kindle owner or device owner or e-reader is probably in a way that you have uh, naturally a high demand for romance books. So what's the nonfiction writer supposed to do? Well, a nonfiction writer has a couple of avenues to to take here. First of all, saying that romance and mystery, suspense, sci-fi is the bulk of the market does not say you cannot be successful in nonfiction. So take business and money or take self-help. Also there, you still have trending and attractive niches. I mean, we've seen things like, you know, personal, personal transformation, certain self-help niches still trending up. Now, the one thing you have to consider though is ebook is not the only avenue to success and and we had a analysis of all the bestseller lists on Kindle as to what is the format penetration of the overall bestseller lists, what is ebook driven, what is hardcover, what's paperback driven. Now, whilst the first genres I mentioned, romance, MTS, and sci-fi, they have all a ebook penetration of like 90%, 70 to 90%. When it comes to business books, for example, we measured like 24% ebooks. Then in business book, it's another 27% hardcover, another 17% or so was paperback. And then you have actually also by now quite a reasonable share, almost 30% 
of the bestsellers being audio, right? And if you look at self-help, the, the picture is even more extreme. Although the book market supply is completely swamped in the ebook and the Kindle world, when it comes to the demand side, also here, print is still a very important channel. So as a nonfiction author, the data can be very, very helpful still on the ebook market to gauge what's trending up, what's trending down, what's working. But when it comes to the distribution, my first advice would be also look into print and also look into audio if you're, especially if you're into business books. And the next step is what are you actually writing for as a nonfiction author? Do you write to earn money with a book or do you write to showcase and prove authority so that you can, but you earn your money elsewhere? And I don't want to generalize or overgeneralize, but I, I think in many, many book market niches, take, for example, now, even if you go away from business and money, you know, there are very obscure, very tiny niches in the ebook market, crafts, hobbies and home. My, my famous example is how to grow bonsai. You type bonsai into Amazon, immediately turns up a book with a number one bestseller badge. And that number one bestseller badge is not overall in the store, but it applies to the category the book is in. In that case, it is gardening and horticulture, da 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 da, growing bonsais or something, right? Yeah. And that book is the number one bestseller. It immediately jumps into your eyes the minute you type in that keyword into the search bar. If you then look at the real store-wide sales rank of the book, it's around whatever fifty thousand, sixty thousand, so whatever two to three copies a day. So the author is never going to get rich with the books. But if that person, whatever, you know, has a gardening company or a bonsai online shop, it's a completely different matter. So my other big piece of advice to a nonfiction author would be use the book to prove authority, but use then that authority to monetize other channels, whether it is your coaching business, whether it is your consulting business, whether it's your other online product, information product, you name it. That would be my piece of advice for nonfiction authors. Yeah, exactly. Like creating an online course. And I suppose that brings me to something I'm interested in. If you're a nonfiction writer or if you're somebody running a business, you know, you got to spend all your time or a certain amount of your time writing and creating. So how do you go about balancing that with the time you might need to run a coaching practice, for example, or, you know, create an information product like an online course? Right. Now, especially the nonfiction side of the business, I think renders itself to a large degree to outsourcing. So, I mean, even if you look at the big nonfiction business books that you see in the airports, you know, hardly anybody of these people wrote the book him or herself, right? They may have had the idea, they may have had the outline, they even may have used, you know, dictated their thoughts while doing a walk in the park and, and structured the book. But then they will have hired a ghostwriter. So especially in nonfiction, I think you have to look into outsourcing part of the journey. And if you say no, outsourcing the actual writing so that you have more time for the marketing or your coaching business is not your thing. You say, I'm owning the content. I want to write. Then that's a perfectly fine decision, too. But then you have to free up or higher capacity to help you then with the other parts of the business, which are exactly, well, who's maintaining the website, who's taking care of the information products, who's taking care of the book marketing side of the business. In a long story short, and I also learned it the hard way myself, the day has only 24 hours a day, and you don't want to spend 24 hours a day 
neither writing nor working and doing the publishing side of your business. So you have to find helping hands to scale the business. Otherwise, the whole thing is not set up for success. So what tips based on your own experience would you give somebody who wants to try outsourcing for the first time? Um, when I personally took the outsourcing journey, first of all, first piece of research is, well, what are my sources of potential freelancers? And, you know, the second you Google outsourcing, you know, freelance productivity enhancement, obviously you're pointed to the big platform starting from Upwork. Um, to the low-end providers such as Fiverr.com, you name them. And obviously, there are many niche-based ones in between. Take Design 99 Designs for designs and all these sorts of things. The sources are known. What I can suggest, though, is two things that many people don't, I find, don't tell you. The, the one is, because you also at the start look at price, you are probably tempted to, you know, go for a cheap resource and, and that's fine for the beginning. But what you want to build is also a bit like a strategic relationship. So what I did in my business when we started outsourcing is, first of all, you have to be have to use a professional process, you know, not just write three emails or a very short description of what you want to have on these platforms. I actually took more what I did also in my corporate life, like these are like three pages of specific specs, right? This is what I want. And you have it in two parts, one like for pre-qualifying candidates and then one a, a deeper description for when you actually want to find the right person. And the other thing what I did, we built into the hiring process almost like this is the task. And the people we now work with, you know what happened? There were like two or three candidates who basically delivered the product without having even been hired. I mean, how cool is that? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, while I almost while I was still, you know, honing the 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 task specifications, I already got back a reply, you know, from a person on the Philippines. Hey, I completely understand what you have. Here's like a mock-up. Here's like the the pilot, so to speak. And I looked at it and said, wow, you know, you're hired. Full stop. And then you start running with it. So what I'm saying is try to build into the process where you let the person do like a little part of the work, either paid or they may even do it as part of the hiring process. De depends on how competitive that hiring market is, obviously. But that's a good thing to do. And then the second part is, while this may look a little bit more opportunistic at first, you very fast will find people who are proactive, who understand what you want to have. I can't tell you how many times I've written out, to be blunt, while the one guy already delivered what you wanted without even having been hired, the other person, by comparison, wrote you the fourth email, whether he or she could have more description and, you know, just didn't understand what the task was. So that's the one part. And then once you have that, try to think strategically about the person you're working with, not just transactionally. And that helped us a great bit because the out part of the outsources, we now have are highly qualified and they've been working for us now for, you know, two years and, and more. And it also then gives you a little bit of responsibility because we're literally feeding the family over there. And it's completely a win-win. I could never pay such level of qualification if I paid a worker here in the West. So one may say, yeah, so you're not helping our society here. But I say, yeah, but we live on planet Earth and I'm feeding a family and kids over there in the Philippines and they're very grateful for it. 
So it sounds to me like you've taken some skills that you maybe have acquired in the corporate world, for example, delegation and collaboration, and applied them to setting up your own business. Are there any other skills like that that you've either taken from the corporate world or perhaps are there any skills that you had to develop once you set up your own business that you maybe didn't have before? Well, reality struck once you are, <laughs> once I got an entrepreneur. And so there's that second part very definitely because especially, you know, I lived in the corporate world and while being a management partner in a consultancy, you are automatically also an entrepreneur. You have to take care of your staff, you know, keep them busy, keep them utilized. So. Yes, there were skills in terms of, you know, delegation, getting work organized, getting tasks split up so they can be done faster. That all helped. But the one thing that any entrepreneur will probably tell you that corporate life doesn't teach you, especially if you're in consulting, you know, in consulting, you can always tell the client, look, this is what you can do. You have option A, B, C, and D, and here are all the pros and cons, and you can analyze things to death, but you're not taking the decision. and as an entrepreneur, you're faced with decision-taking like every day, every minute, every hour of the day. So that's certainly a skill I had to develop and actually leave behind the the comfort and the luxury of analyzing every problem. You know, you have to develop on certain things, certain gut feel. Having said this, I see way too many entrepreneurs and startup companies who go by gut feel, right? And this is where the rigorous corporate process helped me a great deal to apply it then also to yourself and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Before you spend that money, what is going to do to your business? You know, what's the return on a hit? Are you going to see it back? You know, so I think that's where things helped a great deal. And Alex, from reviewing, I suppose, your reports for Kalytics and from what, what you were telling me there uh, about when you were a consultant, uh, you strike me as somebody who's, who's quite comfortable with reviewing large amounts of data and then developing an ability to focus on what's important in large amounts of data. So do you have any maybe advice for somebody who might be struggling to to focus on what's important, particularly if they're feeling overwhelmed by all the information that's coming at them, whether from a boss or from statistics about their books, for example? Right. You raise a very important point here because in today's world, I mean, there is data and information overflow, right? People get swamped. If you are an author to stay in the industry and, you know, you start doing your own Facebook or Amazon ads and then they give you data and, and you're swamped with key performance metrics for that's usually not the home turf of a writer and you can get easily overwhelmed. For me, I spent 20 years, as you say, you know, weeding through data, aggregating it. And then we always had a joking, um, jokingly, we said a good analysis you know, aggregates the data in a way that it can be understood by a child, a grandmother or a corporate CEO. All of them react the same way if they see things that are too complex and uh, they spend more spending the time on figuring out what it means than taking action on it and going with it. So if you feel overwhelmed by today's information overflow, also back to the outsourcing side, I mean, you wouldn't know how many smart data people are out there in the outsourcing market. Now, there's two types of them. Ones are like just the doers who who can do the number crunching for you. But you will also have people whom you can ask, well, what does this tell you? And so if if you're not into numbers, 
you know, try to find somebody who can help you with it. It, it is absolutely affordable. You have a great many engineers and programmers and controllers out there in India, Pakistan, Philippines who are highly trained and can totally help you with the analytics of your business. That's good advice. And I suppose one last question. Do you work longer hours now that you're running your own business or did you work longer hours when you were a management consultant? Now, the irony is I work longer. But the big distinction is every hour I spend more, I completely feel I'm working on my own dream and not my company's, you know, or employer's dream or um, client's dream. Now, working for clients was great. You know, you really enjoyed doing projects when you felt you're part of the client organization. You're working with them as a team. And that's a great mission and a great source of satisfaction. But if you start being successful at working at your own dream, you I think the one thing I'm now learning is you have to totally discipline yourself in a way and, you know, or let your wife beat your head with a saucepan to spend more time with the family, because that's that's where the whole idea started. So if you if you ask me, well, where did I fail? I honestly I started doing this to spend more time with the family. Well, I have to be honest, I spend more work hours. However, I have the office here in the in the rooftop of our house. And for the last four years, I've seen my daughter every day for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I probably I lost all my, you know, whatever platinum cards with the airlines. And frankly, I don't want to have them back in return for, you know, compared to what I have now. So, yes, longer hours, but much more fun and way more time with the family. I get it. And Alex, if people are interested in finding you or Klytics, where should they go? Very simply, type in K hyphen Lytics. So letter K minus sign Lytics, like in analytics.com. And um, that's the homepage. But if you want to get in touch with me personally, you know, just write to support at Klytics.com. In the subject line, attention, Alex, it will be channeled to me. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.